Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. A listener wrote us this week to share a passage from letter 57 of Jerome that captures with respect to the terrorism of translations what we said recently about Semitic languages in opposition to Hellenism and what we explained in today's episode about Semiticized Greek in opposition to Imperial Latin. Time would fail me were I to unfold the testimonies of all who have translated only according to the sense. It is sufficient for the present to name Hilary the Confessor, who has turned some homilies on Job and several treatises on the Psalms from Greek into Latin yet has not bound himself to the drowsiness of the letter, or fettered himself by the stale literalism of inadequate culture. Like a conqueror, he has led away captive into his own tongue, the meaning of his originals. Like a conqueror, he has led away captive into his own tongue, the meaning of his originals. The spoken language of a people reflects a practical reality, meaning the way things work in daily life out of what God himself forms in the womb. Spoken language is not manufactured, it is found. In Semitic languages, this is especially powerful because of the phenomenon of the triliteral root. The special value of a sacred written text, specifically the consonantal Hebrew of the Bible and the Arabic Quran, is that the practical reality of its language at the time of its writing is fixed to the extent that the biblical text itself concocts its scriptural Hebrew as a cross of the different extant Semitic languages, it is not so much the Hebrew language as it is the Semitic language of God encoded in the Bible. In other words, the Bible, and ultimately even the New Testament, is written in God's Semitic Debarim, combined with the living tradition of spoken Arabic, whose functionality is preserved in the fixed text of the Quran. This fact makes the everyday spoken Arabic of simple people of more value in the study of consonantal biblical Hebrew than the most expensive theological degrees from the fanciest schools. If you do not believe me, just listen to a secular teacher of Arabic from the land. As Jerome said, 
led away captive, explain lexicology and grammar as she teaches Arabic. Even if she is not interested in the Bible or the Quran, she cannot help but teach the Bible and the Quran more effectively than modern religious scholars because of what is found in the etymology of the language, which is itself sacred. Translation, Robert Carroll explains, is a transformation that wrenches the text from its home in the ancient cultures and languages, deports that text, and exiles it in foreign languages and cultures. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke chapter 4 verses 16 to 19. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 496 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we talked about the chain of colonial slash imperial languages. And I want to make an important point about the Greek. We left something out that I think is critical, and it relates to functionality. We stressed, Rich, the importance of the Greek for evangelizing the Gentiles and forcing them to submit to the Hebrew, which is correct, but we didn't mention something critical, and that is that Paul's audience in the New Testament, and therefore Jesus's audience, was a Latin-speaking Roman polity. So the language of the conqueror, the language of the oppressor, the colonial language, to use the modern term. So when we say colonial, we are extending the metaphor, as it were. It's the one who is spreading, proselytizing, imposing. This business of proselytizing and spreading and building and expanding is a sin. Just go back and rehear Matthew and then come back and hear Luke with us. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, builders and expanders, compadres with King Herod. So this business of preaching and speaking in Greek, which is what Jesus does in the New Testament, is against the Latin of the Roman Empire. So suddenly Greek in the New Testament is the language of the downtrodden because the Romans conquered the Greeks. So there is no good guy, bad guy. Just hear what I'm saying. It's not that Greek is good or bad or Latin is good or bad or Hebrew is good or bad per se. With one exception, the consonantal Hebrew is the language concocted in the text of God's Torah, which he spoke once at one time. There's no reception history nonsense. God spoke once 
in his language, which he created in order to speak his Debarim, to which everyone must submit if they want to hear what he said once. However, in order to always make the arrogant human beings submit, (laughs) if you try to conquer your neighbor, he will force you to hear what he said to them in their language. He always makes the one who thinks he's big submit to the smaller one. It's classic. If you want to understand what I'm saying, it's like this business of hummus. Nothing is more insulting to a Palestinian than to tell him, would you like some hummus? Now, everybody thinks, what's the big deal, Father Mark? It's a huge deal. If you, as a colonial American or as an Israeli, among yourselves want to refer to the food that has been eaten for centuries in the Holy Land as hummus, God bless you. But you can't go to a Palestinian and refer to it as hummus. It's insulting. It functions psychologically like the N-word. What's the big deal? I don't get it. It's a way of putting someone down. Richard always makes the point about how when you greet an immigrant, if you say hello in their language, it's a way of lifting them up. If you go and take someone's land, and then you take their food as your own, and then you pronounce their food differently, it's a way of putting down. This issue of language with respect to colonialism is a huge deal. My kids make fun of me when I correct them in the way that they pronounce Arabic consonants. It's a battle you can't win. It's generational. In the United States, it's generational because the marketing culture here creates a gap between generations to make money. It exploits the gap between generations. It's not assumed elsewhere that there's a generational gap. It's manufactured here by capitalism. So we're stuck with it. So language is essential. This mechanism in scripture of forcing the Latin-speaking Romans to speak Greek, of forcing the conquering Greeks to submit to scriptural Hebrew, or in the modern example of respecting the way a conquered people pronounces their consonants, or as you always say, Richard, of showing respect towards an immigrant community in the way that they speak, all of it counts. So there's more here than meets the ear. The way that one is able to take the wind out of the sails of the conqueror is to speak directly to the conquered. The ones who are left down is a way of really undermining the power. And I've actually heard this story of an educator who is Jewish, and he went to the Soviet Union to give talks to Jewish groups there. The problem was he didn't speak Russian. So whenever he would go to this, and this was in the 80s, in the midst of the fall of the Soviet Union, anytime he would go there, he would get assigned a translator. And when he would speak, the translator would translate into Russian for him. 
because Russian is the colonial language of the Russian Empire, and so this is how he was forced to speak. He was forced to speak in the language of the conqueror. So after a while, he got frustrated. He realized that the translator was not translating exactly what he wanted or he felt uncomfortable with it. So then this American Jew says to the group in Yiddish, hey, does anyone here speak Yiddish? And a bunch of hands went up and he said, how about you just speak in Yiddish? And so he gave the rest of his talk in Yiddish. The translator could no longer understand what he was saying, the translator being the representative of the imperial state, but the people could understand exactly what he was saying. And there was one old woman who came. She was in her 80s at the time. And she came to him weeping and said, I have not heard Yiddish spoken in a formal setting since I was a little girl. Because the dignity it gives to those who are downtrodden and the way it treads down those who are high works very scripturally. And so, as you're saying, Father, when Paul is addressing his audience, he makes it easy for the downtrodden to understand and hard for the imperialists to understand. So the work, the labor goes to those who are up high and those who are down below are dignified. Now, the message we know flattens everybody. Isaiah tells us this. But the access to this message is easier for those who are trodden down. This is how the scripture functions so that there's always a challenge for those who want to read. There's always a challenge for those who want to understand. When people get frustrated because they don't understand a scriptural text on the first time, it wasn't meant to be read one time. You got to keep listening and listening and listening and listening to the text until you understand it, and then listen again to make sure you understood it. Because the work that is required to understand the scriptural text is something we should never down. Making it accessible is a mistake, but allowing people to have access. It's like what I said before. If you want to have everybody understand scripture, you can either translate it into their language or teach all of them how to read it in the original language. It's pretty easy to figure out which one's going to take more work, the work of one person or the work of everybody. But Scripture is there for everyone to do the work. When Luke depicts Jesus reading Scripture, this text allows the Greek speaker to understand the words of this character Jesus in the story. However, the words in this story in Luke chapter 4 hearken back to the Hebrew words of Isaiah. And that's always the path one has to trace back to this original Semitic Hebrew language. Look, the Septuagint Greek is a challenge. The Greek of the text of Luke is a challenge to go back to the Semitic. I was preaching about the text of Luke on Sunday, Rich, and I explained the link between the Greek pinnacle and the Hebrew kanaf, and immediately one of my Palestinian parishioners lit up like a candle and said, Abuna, kanaf, kanafa. It means 
a covering and not just like a covering or a hem, but it can also mean a covering or a protection to cover or protect or to keep a family together. And you can go on like kanafa, the dessert, and how you keep everything together on the tray and so forth, which corresponds to the meaning of the Most High who provides shelter in Psalm 91, which means that someone, Richard, who speaks Semitic, I'm not even going to say Arabic or Hebrew, someone who speaks Semitic intuitively in the common language is in the mentality of the biblical text, not the mentality of Greek philosophy, which is how people twist the words of God by using the fact that the text of Luke is in Greek, which is what people do in theology. That's not what the text of the Septuagint is written for. It's written to undermine Greek philosophy in order to undermine the conqueror. And it is used and employed by the text of Luke to undermine the Latin conqueror. Come on. It's, as Father Paul likes to say, I love this expression, it's high time we stop arguing with our colonial benefactors who are no benefactors at all, and we just get down to the business of teaching. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. As far as I'm concerned, this verse is stacked with technicalities. If Jesus stands to read, we are facing judgment. I know that we like to think of this just as a normal Sunday at church, but already you are not going back in time to submit to the text of Luke. You are bringing this pericope from the text of Luke and transporting it to your life in the modern world. This isn't your church wherever you live in North America on a Sunday morning. This is a point in time in the ancient past that you can't possibly understand or imagine. And I'll tell you why you can't possibly understand or imagine it, because I know from experience as a Roman patrician that you cannot stomach it. Believe me. You have no patience for it, and you cannot stomach what it means that Jesus stood up to read the Torah. It's unbearable for you as a North American. He is standing to judge. And how do I know it's unbearable? Because we already heard in Matthew that the one who stands to judge will be judged, which means he will be torn down, humiliated, and cast aside. Because no one will tolerate someone who reads the judgment. 
you imagine that what Jesus is doing is lovely, that he has a beautiful chanting voice, and that at coffee hour he was so pleasant, and you could chat with him, and wasn't he a nice man? Did you notice the twinkle in his eye? That's how you imagine Jesus. And that's why it's impossible for people to understand how unbearable it is that on the Savaton, the day when we come to face the instruction to be told what it is we are supposed to do, Jesus stood up as a reference to read the instruction. In the day of the Sabbaths, it says in Greek, of the Sabbaths. This is the one day of the Sabbaths where it was customary to read this particular reading. It's hard to translate that into English because everywhere it reads on the Sabbath day. It's not the Sabbath day, in the day of the Sabbaths. And when he stood up, it says he anesti. It's the same word that we say when we say Christ is risen. So when you say he stood up to judge, this is a very pregnant word because this standing up is the same one we use for standing up from the grave for judgment. When he comes to this place where he was brought up, I also like that as well. And the word for brought up in Greek is tethramenos, which comes from trefo, which means to be fed. Trefo means feed. And so the place where he had been fed, the place where he was nourished, and the place where he was brought up is this place, Nazareth. And so in the place where he was nourished, where he was fed, he comes in this day of Sabbaths and he stands up anesti in judgment. And from this posture, we enter into the scene. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Again, for me, this is 1 Corinthians. Everything will be put under his feet, and the kingdom will be handed over to him. He is being put in the position to silence everyone's mouth and to invalidate everyone's premise, and to crush everything underfoot. This is why I know what he's doing is unacceptable to everyone. Everything's going to be crushed and scattered and invalidated. Notice, the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He didn't take it. What's the big deal? The big deal is that in this society... We take time. We take the opportunity. And how can you take? We take things because we want to take initiative. But Jesus is taking no initiative here. Everything is being handed to him. He is obedient. As you said, he was brought. He was put in the position. He was stood up. And now the book was handed to him. He doesn't grasp at equality. He doesn't claim anything. It was handed to him. As he was brought into the temple, the book of the prophecy was handed to him. He didn't even choose the book. And notice it's a scroll. It says the book, and you imagine we're talking about a printed book that's bound. But specifically the book of Isaiah, meaning a scroll that contained the contents of the Debarim of Isaiah was handed to him. So he didn't choose the lectionary assignment. It was assigned to him. And so when he received the scroll of Isaiah, he opened it up 
and found the place where something specific was written. It's typical even in synagogue worship today, that's one of the things is they have a Haftorah reading. You have a reading from the prophets. They'll precede the reading of Torah. Whether this is how we did things back then, we can't just assume that there's continuity between the two, but there is a parallel. So that's not particularly remarkable that he would read from the prophets. The point here is that he is there standing to read from the prophets. And he's not handed a book and then he's leafing through to try to find the place where he wants to read. No, but he's handed a scroll and the scroll is already on a place. You can't flip back and forth on a scroll. It's only one dimensional. You can only go back and forth. You can't skip pages. So there's a lectionary. He's handed this reading and he's on this day of Sabbaths. And this is the text that's written. So there's this idea that of providence where he's brought here at this time. It's not emphasized here, but we do know that it was the Spirit that brought him to this place where he was raised in order to read. And he's there on this day of the Sabbaths. Of all Sabbaths, this is the one he was there. He was there to read this passage. We don't have to go into free will and determinization and all this kind of stuff, but he's there on the day when it's the job of the reader to read this, and it's coming from Jesus's mouth in this text. That's what we have to be focused on. The point is, Richard, he has no control over his station, and it's reflected actually in the following verse in Isaiah, this word masah, masaha, in the Hebrew and the Arabic, that he was anointed, even the Lord's hand passed over him, he was touched. He's not in control. You follow what I'm saying? He was put there. So even to the extent, and this really speaks to the function of the shepherd, even to the extent that he is standing in the position to judge, where everything will be put under his feet, because he's announcing the judgment. He's not the judge. His father is the judge. And he will be smashed because he's announcing the judgment even insofar as he's put and stood up in that position, he has no control over the situation. He didn't even pick the reading. This is what we have to accept and submit to because we as Americans are always talking about initiative. What's in it for us? What's the return on what we put into it? Jesus puts nothing into it, takes nothing out of it, gets nothing out of it. He is just under the control of the will of God. So you see him standing there, and if you're impressed by what you see, you're a fool who is fooled by Satan. Because in the previous verse, you were praising him. You're not getting the message. And at the same time, it's not pleasant to be under the pressure of Jesus who is announcing the pressure of Isaiah chapter 61. This is what I mean by it's impossible for us to be transported back in time to this pressure of the Roman household that is implementing the pressure of Isaiah 61.1 on the lips of Jesus in the Lucan text in Greek which is inaccessible without the Hebrew or the Semitic. It's so powerful, Richard, and we have to hear it. Otherwise, it won't work. 
the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. And again, this word sent in Hebrew, shalah, which means to be sent, stretched out. Already when you hear it, it reflects the thesis of shepherdism. You're stretching out. In spoken Arabic, shalaha, to throw off, like to remove a piece of clothing. But again, you can push it further in Semitic, saraha, which means to send forth and drive cattle to pasture. So you can play games and say, oh, he's just being sent. Or you can understand that Jesus, well, that Isaiah in the text that Jesus is implementing here in Luke is talking once again about sending, but in the language of shepherdism. He's being sent out to drive cattle to pasture, (laughs) to release the captives and to help recover the sight of the blind. I'm hitting a little bit harder because I'm convinced in the work that I'm doing, Rich, that the only way to help people understand that you have to hear the Greek Semitically is to show them how to hear the Greek Semitically. There's this overlap between the way that terminology and the concepts of shepherdism are also used in the way of leading human beings. God himself is presented as a shepherd at times. These metaphors go in and out. And so remember before we were talking about angels and the angels are the ones that bring the messages in the very beginning of the book of Luke. And the angel is not essentially an invisible thing that floats around in the air. An angel is essentially a messenger. It's the same word in both Hebrew and Greek, actually, both Malach and Angelos. They're both messengers. So Isaiah is depicting this speaker who says, I was called to deliver this message. That's my job. I am in charge of being a messenger. Now, what does a messenger do? Does a messenger go and do what he feels like doing? No, 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 no. A messenger had to have a perfect memory because a king would tell the messenger, say these words and no other words, and then you would go to the other king and you would repeat those words and that was it. That's why the messenger would get shot because they sounded like the king. So he comes and what is his job? He is anointed. He has this mark of selection so that he can preach. That's the first job of this person, is to preach. But it's specifically to those who are weak, those who are poor, and then furthermore, healing, to preach deliverance, and allowing the blind to see, and those who are in prison to be free again. Okay? But it begins with a message. It begins with a word. Just like the shepherd moves his sheep around with this sound or that sound, the messenger comes to preach a word. So when Jesus then speaks, 
it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The one who is reading it, interestingly enough, is the one actually preaching the word. So as you are reading this word out loud, you sound like the angel. You sound like the prophet. You sound like the word is coming out of your mouth as well. So the fact that Jesus would come this day of Sabbaths to read this reading about how it's my job, I have been anointed to preach this word. Technically, anyone reading on this day would have said those exact words. So the providence is that Jesus happens to be the one reading it here from the place where he was nourished. It is his job now to deliver this word, and this is how he's going to be functioning throughout the rest of the book. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. This caps off the entire incident with Jesus. And I I like the word incident because something has happened here out of Jesus's control. It's the favorable year of the Lord. God has control over the situation. Something has happened here to Jesus, to the people, because of the will of God the Father. And it is pleasing and favorable to God that it has happened now. This is the favorable and opportune year from the perspective of God. This text now at this moment is being applied to Jesus, and it is pleasing and favorable from the perspective of the Lord. That is the power of the Lucan text in verse 19. And it is a loaded statement in verse 19. It's a mic drop. What's beautiful about the mic drop is Jesus is not the one dropping the mic because he hasn't done anything. It's not on his initiative. It's an incident but not on his initiative. And again, the Arabic cognate is radia, which implies favor, goodwill, the contentment of God that the mic drop has happened in the synagogue out among the Gentiles in the wilderness. So God's replacement for David, the one who rejected the throne just offered by the devil, has now been posited in the year that is acceptable from the perspective of the Most High, who is the only one who provides shelter in the wilderness, where Jesus is now proclaiming the news of God's hegemony. Going back to what we were saying at the beginning of the episode, if you read the entire verse in Hebrew, it's not just preaching the year of the desire for the Lord, but also the day of vengeance for our God to comfort all those who are mourning. So it has both sides to it. It's to comfort the afflicted as well as afflict the comforted. This is the day when he comes to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And I like that that's where it stops because it leaves the focus on the Lord and it's his day. The day doesn't ultimately belong to those who are afflicted. It's not about those who are afflicted. It's about the glory of his name. But it just so happens when the Lord wants to glorify his own name, those who mourn and those who are poor benefit. 
but they're not the reason why he's doing what he's doing. This is the difference between social justice and the gospel. It's not about those who are afflicted. They just happen to benefit. So here, Jesus is the one reading the word of the one who comes to give the good news and to preach the day of good desire, of the goodwill, of the pleasing news for the Lord. Rich, I actually appreciate your comment about the social justice warriors, and it gives me the opportunity to explain again why it's important to always lean on the original Semitic. Because when we hear it in translation, it sounds like we are making out of the brokenhearted in Isaiah our champion. You can't escape it. I went with the kids to see the Blue Beetle, and I loved the story of the Blue Beetle because I grew up on the west side in St. Paul. So all my friends growing up were Mexican-Americans. And the west side, when I grew up, it was a community of Middle Eastern immigrants and Mexican immigrants. So the whole anti-imperial metaphor of the Blue Beetle is fantastic, but the story can't escape making out of the immigrant community the oppressor. That's always what they do. They make the oppressed into the hero. Once you do that, the brokenhearted and the downtrodden become the colonial oppressor. You can't escape it. Love the movie, but that's the trap of social justice psychology. You can't get out of it. That's why my only hope is scripture. Now, just to explain to you again from the terminology of Isaiah how scripture is different, you hear in English, he has sent me, and I explained already how sent pertains to shepherdism, to bind up the brokenhearted. This word bind up, obviously it has the implication of this action of wrapping a wound. But it's not just binding up because the cognate, habasa, also means to restrict. And if you look at this word for broken in Hebrew, shabar, broken in pieces, and its Semitic cognate in Arabic, thabara, means destroyed, ruined. So you're constricting something that was destroyed, which is what Scripture does. It takes something that is broken and downtrodden, something in ruins. It doesn't lift it up. It constricts it. It puts pressure on it. It does not lift up the sons of Israel against Alexander the Great. So what I'm saying to you is not me philosophizing about terminology. I'm saying that in this simple example from Isaiah, you have a microcosm of how Scripture works. It constrains and confines those whose hearts have been smashed. It does not let them rise up as the new champion. You're never going to get that from English. In English, you're going to say, oh, look at the poor brokenhearted people. Jesus took care of them. So now they can become the colonizers. No way. 
either we are serious about the cross or we are the lovers of Greek philosophy and the MCU and DC comics. And we want our champions and we want to go beat up someone else's poor people. As for me, I submit to scripture. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.